Um, so yes, I internalized. I had all these labels. I kept closeted. I was 14 and I remember that I was so suppressed with my not only sexuality, but I was so stressed being in a new high school where I knew that I was not someone who is AMAB assigned male at birth. Um, I never even thought as a kid, despite my community, I never was comfortable with anything called man or manly. I just, I was like, it was natural to me. I didn't have the words for it. I didn't have the representation. I was so isolated. I had nothing. And I'm so blessed that I was able to find not only New York people like me and words like me, but um, I suffered. It made you go through mental health. It made you um, suicidal ideation, um, which in... Uh, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I didn't want to sneeze and ruin. Sure. <laughs> I was... Uh, I thought you were having a moment for me. Um, so I remember I was 14. I was overwhelmed being in a new school. And my way of dealing with my anxiety and pressures in school was I um, looked at pornography. And I was eventually caught because my mother has a filter and she approached me and I kind of also before that I always said as not even a joking way seriously I said I want to be a girl when I grow up and I also said that I um, want to be more of myself and I also said I had to confront her at first and I said I'm I didn't really say I'm gay but I had to at first say that like oh kids in school forced me to like look into this you know to play a trick on me because I didn't want to be open and then at first she wanted to ask those kids and I was afraid for them to give them their definition and then at some point I was like this is who I am mom like I like boys um and she just said to me like the community would say is like you'll change and you have to give up these ideas and feelings and my mother was my only support in a community that I felt different. And I was so scared of losing my mother's love that I said, whatever you want, mom, I will hide and not be myself as long as you'll love me. Like I hated, I hurt, I lived in isolation until I was 18. Again, when I was eight and then throughout high school, I was called all these names and I had, I didn't but know. But you went to uh... a Jewish modern Orthodox school okay. in Queens. Um, and like one in um, in elementary school, I suffered. I didn't know at the time I suffered from OCD and I had extreme overthinking, um, which I only got diagnosed in 2011. Um, but I was so stuck in my head that until even now that whenever I have bullying or trauma, I would hear people's voices. Um, so when people called me homophobic words and transphobic words, um, it was so loud in my head. I felt that everyone was thinking and saying, and then added when I came to realization of my identity, I feared that, well, if they're labeling me and I happen to feel this way, is their definitions about me true? So I believed it and it was still a part of me. I was 18. I felt suicidal. Um, I confined it in, I, in a discreet way to a few religious people. I was looking for a rabbi to help me because I was suffering. And this rabbi who was not educated, who's in Brooklyn, who's really famous, his name is Rabbi Goldwasser, who treats like, he tries to be seen as a cool rabbi who uses his tactics to heal people's emotional mental health issues. So like he's known for like helping religious women with their like eating disorders or whatever. And I came there and he was like, oh, these things go away. And I already at first I was a little hopeful, but then I'm like, I felt like, no, these things do not go away. Yeah. Um, and I went to Israel 
and I felt like I needed to hide who I was and try to be religious and added I started throughout high school and even in elementary school like whether it was my learning disabilities and then added just feeling bored and uninterested and not connected to the religion and the toxic spirituality I was taught um and again I felt like if I don't confine in someone I'm going to take my life that was in 2011 and um I told one rabbi, I told two, and then eventually became a few people who knew. And I felt embarrassed that not only people who knew, but knew about me in secrecy. And I kind of felt stigmatized. And I was forced into conversion therapy. And if you know that, it was um, basically, uh, it's illegal by all institutions, uh, medical, psychological. I was emotionally, physically, and sexually um, tortured for two years um was this done in a camp or what setting was it i was forced into these group therapy sessions and going to camp while also being in this study abroad program so people your mom sent you here my mother sent me and then when she found out what this program was that was about it she was all for it um i I want you to get into it but who informed your mom of this camp because i don't because it sounds like she might have been misinformed i did i did because at some point At some point, there was a camp that you needed like a hundred something dollars to attend. And I didn't have that money. And I had to tell my mother and she was all for whatever I needed to do to change myself to fit in because her expectation of me was to be this leader that was going to bring her family together and religious and make her proud for what her um, ex wasn't able to fulfill and I felt pressured to be this expectation of being the man in the family when all along she didn't know that I never saw myself as a man I never saw myself as having a religious life and I really struggled for years to choose and for a long time I appeased her and the community and I was miserable um, and I was two years stuck in Jerusalem thinking that I had a community thinking that I was changing and improving And I was being tortured physically in different ways. Um, And at some point, I just, you know what it was? It was, there was a part of conversion therapy, which you could all research. And it's, again, it's illegal. But in religious communities, they still practice it. And this was in Jerusalem. This was in Jerusalem and Israel, Mm -hmm. uh, 2011, 2013. There was a moment where they said, in order to be a healthy man, one needed to be toxic. One needed to perform toxic masculinity and these archaic views of masculinity and manhood in order to heal. There is this belief in conversion therapy that your sexuality is due to broken relationships with people of the same gender. And I partially believed it, which got me into it because I was like, my father wasn't around, my brother abused me, men didn't like me. And now looking back, it's because... Yeah, it wasn't anything to do about brokenness. They were broken and harmed me, but I was placed in a gender group that it wasn't my gender. It wasn't your gender. I was, you know, I'm non-binary and trans femme, and that's who I am. And in these communities, it was boy or girl, you know? And I was placed in, if I was in a girl group, it would have been way more healthier for me. Um, But I didn't have... I didn't have an arts education growing up. I didn't have a physical education. I had 30 minutes in a locker room once a week. That was my physical education. I did not have um, 
tutoring and services for people with disabilities. Um, there was other social services that you get in public schools that this is again part of the fight that if we are funding all schools, religious or not, you need to comply with all the rules and laws in New York City. Right. And there are people who are getting away with it and making money. And there are people who leave, who join these organizations like Footsteps and Yafed to tell their voices. But again, they have so much power and control over their schools that even the school system the like school city officials and the government like the mayor or the governor is not even doing so much of a job to investigate and change because they are thinking about community partnership for political power as much as they're democrats they want the power and the vote that the orthodox jews have like other communities so they're willing to hush hush on some things to be able to gain their power to stay in power um so whenever you do see like an anti-semitic hate crime this is an opportunity for these political leaders to come in and say we'll protect you and with that protection we'll make sure no one touches you when you're problematic we will make Make sure everyone look yeah. away in other things and protect you. That so was, I, I do feel that the Jewish community is probably one of the most uh, connected and protected communities. Well, again, we in, have in New York City, at least, and I, and I'm not speaking just on on a religious sure um, level because mm-hmm. um, I, I'm I'm thinking across ethnicities oh, thank you. and across other racial groups. Um, I knew growing up and where Danny and I are from, we're adjacent to a very popular Jewish community in Queens. We were, we were actually where? In, at Laurelton. So, so there Cambria is a Heights cemetery is... right there where a very popular yes. rabbi is buried. So you know. And you so know, they oh, usually have a lot of control over the neighborhood. They have a lot of police mm, protection because they have these celebrations where they expect him to rise and all these things. And so it's like a part of the town gets shut down. But it, also, the community we're from is originally a Jewish community. It was a white community. Yeah. It, it was, it was because that church on 228 was an, it was a um, synagogue, a synagogue. Mm-hmm. So that is a historically Jewish so, community. And they tried what to happened, purchase the reason, yes, too. the reason why they, they moved out was because it became infested with drugs. So mm. they removed themselves from the community and now it's become one of the most affluent black communities in the whole mm. of America, to be honest. So, you know, it's funny that community I told you about earlier that are considered emissaries that Oprah went into, that's that cemetery is where their late leader, um, Rabbi Schneerson, mm-hmm. um, the Chabad leader of the modern Chabad leader who um, is buried there. So they come from Crown Heights, always there. And I've also been there. They have a they whole setup. Every time. They have, mm-hmm. they have Crocs there for you to take off your shoes and to walk into the cemetery in a certain way. They have food 24 seven. They have like these, it looks like a fancy hotel. Some of the rooms that you could stay and grieve and write notes. They have air, con- it's like it's like a whole government undercover operation for like lab testing. And there's there. homes that- And they have the whole like hotel section for the women and the men. It's the, the, the Chabad movement like all these like Scientology or, um, you know, Kabbalah or all these powerful religions that um, have influence over people is a multi-billion dollar corporation. And they get money by preying on people's need for spirituality, religion and community. Um, 
which helps fund this and helps them get leeway from the government. I mean, what government, if you think about it, why would a secular government give a group of a religious people ownership of a cemetery to operate your own religious functions when it's supposed to be for the public? Isn't that like, that's like, I mean, if it's, it's absurd, it's and is it's, that a Jewish cemetery only? I'm assuming. No, it is and not a Jewish cemetery only because it would probably well, have to be a section. Because um, Jews I, do not, Orthodox Jews do not get buried in non-Jewish spaces. They have their own cemeteries. So I don't, at least, because I think I know someone who was actually buried in that specific. There maybe might they have be a, a different, different section, section. because uh, what but happens they have their is own. that that cemetery is actually it goes all the way down to Springfield. Yes, yes, so that same cemetery. The section that you're probably talking about because the front part where Springfield is facing that's completely separate we need than some air, girl. Oh, where the, heated over where here. if yeah. you were to drive down where, like they, where the park girls. is and you know there's a park right there Cambria Heights yes, Park yes. and then, then you have the houses oh, that's the Jew- separate oh, so when they go in I did and, not and, know that yes, so what happens is when you see them celebrating, I I, I don't want to, I don't know what holiday or, or why, but I know they expect the, they do the celebration because they expect the rabbi to rise or something like that. So in the Hasidic community, again, which split off from other Orthodox Jews, yeah. um, which was what the early uh, non-Hasidic Jews thought is that these people are going to eventually believe in false gods. And they really put so much power in their rabbis that they think that they are immortal. And mm-hmm. the Hasidic that Lubavitch Jews so believe, backwards, they still believe, they still believe, some of them want to believe he's not dead. Some of them are believe he's hiding, and some of them believe he's going to come alive. So, they have a ceremony in Crown Heights where <laughs> they roll out a rug, a red rug, and the chair that he sit because every day at 3.30 when they pray in the afternoon, because Orthodox Jews pray three times a day, so Mincha in the afternoon, they do it because they think his spirit is going to come in and sit. And they still go there and worship and pray because they think it has power. All over the world, you have religious leaders across religion that they really feel there's something. And that's where it splits from God and splits from putting um, power and influence and politics into certain leaders. So this, this. Uh- but I also was going to just say that before you go on. The, the way that Orthodox Jews are taught to have even a segregated way of living. I mean, you're fucking dead. Like, no one's checking you. No one's saying, hey, did you do this? Did you eat that right? But this shows you their mentality from birth to death. They segregate themselves completely so, um, from anyone who's not only not Orthodox or Jewish, but also people who are not Orthodox. Because the majority of Jews in America who are not Orthodox in the world are considered in their minds not Jewish. Even though Jewish in simply definition is someone by choice, someone who was born to a Jewish mother, for some people that means it's a Jewish father, um, or someone who converted, but for them it's people who are Orthodox or converted through Orthodoxy. And everyone else, the majority of the 15 million Jews in the world, and there's only there's uh, according to statistics there's only like 800,000 orthodox Jews in America and in Israel they're like 20 25% they they really put this mentality that was into me that was a really hard um in 
uninternalization, like Mm -hmm. the queer phobia and the sexism and the racism that I experienced about myself that I'm still uninternalizing was that you're not one of us if you're not like us and believe us and worship like us. And I really had to say that's bullshit because a lot of your customs were made over time and were not what was, no one was wearing penguin suits uh, in the desert a few thousand years ago. It's fucking hot. So yeah. there's no... There, I once <laughs> approached a rabbi who said to me his... You know, you see them with black hats. He said to me it was a religious law that you have to wear a black hat. I said, please show me where that says that because everyone was wearing fucking turbans if I could pull out the pictures for you. For my family, you know, in the Middle East and in Yemen, women did not wear wigs. It was a modern... Um, European influence their communities the Orthodox Jews (laughs) in Eastern Europe were not wearing wigs a lot of their way of dress and the way their culture is influenced by Western uh, society or the societies they Mm -hmm. were around I mean Yiddish which is for again amongst Jews we talked about the spectrum of political thinking because mm-hmm. we have orthodoxy and then we have conservative, which is in the middle, and then we have reform and then other stuff way more to the left, which is the majority. Now, in terms of ethnic origins, you could see it breaks it down to three. Ashkenazi, which means um, Jews from European descent. Ashkenaz is an area in Germany where during the Roman Greco time, Jews were sold as slaves when Jerusalem was um, destroyed and they dispersed into Europe. Then there's Sephardic, the Jews that made it to Spain. Spain Spain in Hebrew means Farad. And the Jews that left Spain and went into North Africa because it was controlled by an Islamic caliphate, they were able to migrate back into parts of the Middle East close to Israel. They were called the Jews that hailed from Spain. And then my group that I'm from, it's called Mizrahi, which really comes from Edota Mizrach, the tenets of the East, which then was stigmatized in the 60s by Golda Meir, who said these Jews are not white and not like us and not advanced, so we're calling them all Easterners. Those are Jews from Yemen, Georgia, India, um, Iran, um, all that. So in terms of, again, all their cultures, a lot of it was adapted by whatever society they were living in, because Yiddish which Orthodox white Jews uh, follow is mostly German and Slavic languages. The only thing about it that's Hebrew is less than 15% and that the language is written Hebrew. So even their own language, it doesn't have really so much of a holy context to it, but they live by it as this is the holy word because that's all they followed. So a lot of it is just tradition without evaluating where else did it stem from. So you mentioned laws. Right. And so through my research, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, there is a book called Halakha. Halakha. Yes. Okay. okay. I'm so sorry. You're Mis- so fine. Okay. So that was the book. That's a book of laws, right? Like- so I, I would say simply Halakha is not really a book. Halakha is just um, the laws within the Torah. So we have the five books of Moses, right? And then after that, they, we have um, part of the Talmud. We have the Book of the Prophets. Mm-hmm. So, you know, after Moses' death, you now have the prophets where, you know, um, the Israelites, the Hebrews were um, still trying to come and were starting to come back to Israel. 
um, were starting to explore, you know, their faith um, as, you know, refugees or migrants. And then you have many, many other chapters. And then, like, uh, years, hundreds of years later, we have something called Gemara, which was uh, these books based on rabbinical writings in both Babylon, which is what modern Iraq is, or um, in Jerusalem also, um, when Jews lived in various times at centers of trade, because Jews were always considered um, nomadic people. They were always integrated, persecuted, discriminated, and sometimes blended in and assimilated, sometimes thrived and married within, and then often as a whole are told to move and leave. That was always, I would say, their their um, suffering and I would even say a curse that they experience. Um, so halakha is where the rabbis who created their own traditions, who've all changed that interpretation over time versus, you know, what was written by whoever wrote the Bible, which we won't debate now because I don't really believe that it was written by God. Uh, they set the terms for their communities depending on the environments that they had to survive in of how is a way of using Jewish law. Jewish law is halakha for like, for example, if you have a law that says honor uh, the Sabbath, right? That could be interpreted in so many ways. Who was the people that made it? It was the rabbis that were gatekeeping it. They had their own definitions of what rest meant. So maybe when we were in the desert, you know, uh, hundreds of years ago, making a fire was considered work because it was. Well, today, some rabbis in the Orthodox community will interpret it as turning on the light, which you, you and I would think, it's no oh, energy to turn it on. But then that stream of consciousness breaks away from the other forms of Jews who are not Orthodox who are saying, no, it's not light, but it's not going to work today, literally. Mm -hmm. While they are like, no, we cannot do anything that is considered the same in the rest of the week. So there is all the rabbis do not agree. All the rabbis mm -hmm. can't. That kind of helped me realize that, that there isn't a one way to practice your faith or spirituality in Amen. God because religion is made by man. Spirituality is something more divine. And um, that has helped me in my journey to realize y'all fight and disagree on yourself and you spend hundreds, if not thousands of years writing books about it and you still can't get along and, and still don't have the answer. That's something that um, I have used in my faith. I'm Christian, but I am non-denominational because of the fact that I feel like um, there are certain laws in the Bible and not even only in the Bible, but that I feel like as a whole that are practiced that don't make sense. Yes. Like um, one of the laws is love your neighbor, but we can't well, love we, you, but you can't love you. You can't they love do this that. person. And then, and then they do the, the same over, shit. The, over, the overlooking rule is, okay, how could you love your, how are you supposed to love your neighbor, but you can't support how they want to live their life? That's what I you always see, struggled. I don't understand that. That's kind what of I thought. struggled with growing up, where there was all these values in my community that said, "Do charity, love others, be kind, help the blind person cross the street," like all these humanistic values. But then it was mm -hmm. not only it did not apply to anyone who wasn't. Uh, Orthodox yes. or Jewish, but it was anyone who was just not like, like them. You. So I already got the message going in that if I'm Jewish, 
and these rules are not applying to me, but then you're also saying that I'm bad for who I am, then how does this match up? And what I actually took in my traditions is, I believe, like some more left-wing thinking uh, Jews, uh, like Reconstructionist Jews, who believe that in order to be part of the modern world, you have to use their tradition for all. If you're going to fix the world, you can't stay in your sheltered community. Amen. And I always had, from a young child, child rich experiences of the world by being outside and i think being representation we know matters and we know saves lives and we know breaks down um bridges and obstacles that's the only way you're going to learn from each other if you stay in your own shelter and you tweet this and you send a social media or send a letter there and shake hands that's not community Mm -hmm. and we are all struggling in different ways and Looking outside of the Orthodox community, it's very funny because the Lower East Side used to be very socialist and used to be way more liberal thinking. And those types of Jews who made the nonprofits that service all types of people, you know, like uh, Education Alliance or Henry Street or um, different community centers that were working with um, Puerto Rican activists and black activists. Um, The Jews that walked with um, MLK were um, liberal and, um, you know, modern Jews. They weren't Orthodox Jews because they were like, our liberation is a collective liberation and we know what it is to be a person that does not have rights in a country and is being persecuted as such. And those people had their interpretation. You did not see any Orthodox Jew. Maybe there might have been one, but not that I've heard of or not that you've seen that have walked hand in hand with the black community. Now they're trying to use it as an excuse to start building because not because they care about black rights. It's because they feel that we're now pressured and forced to come out of the community because we're being attacked and we realize there's not a dialogue but they're not going to go is, as far as to shake hand in hand they're Never. only going to do which like is, you be stay in your place i stay in mine we be safe we're still going to gentrify and we're not going to like you but let's let's build uh, that, walls and that doesn't heal people th- that is strange for me growing up in new york because every jewish community that i can think of right now that i'm familiar with is set in a black neighborhood, neighborhood. They if I'm mis- if uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's set in either a black or brown short neighborhood. Like like I middle. said, Danny and I grew up in a neighborhood that's completely adjacent. Um, one of the first homes that I was raised in was literally across the street, <laughs> like around the corner from the cemetery, and I moved like a few blocks over. But it's literally adjacent to that same Jewish community, which is strange because it's like you don't want to um, come together in any sense or be in support of of one another, but you live and reside, you reside in you, our they community. They want the benefit, they want and, the benefit and, of being a minority, and, but don't want to share. And, and not together. only that, what I noticed in my upbringing, and I remember um, a few years back, uh, there was a huge uproar in Laurelton because what happened was um, I came outside one day and I saw a group of uh, Jews walking down my block. And the reason why it alarmed me, and I'm not a person, I don't care what color you are, you can be purple. What alarmed me was you'd never see them on our side of town. And it wasn't just a group of three people. There were, it was, I felt it was, it was a lot of them. And what I noticed what they were doing is 
they were looking to purchase the homes, the homes. in the area. And so what they, they were doing is back. they have letters that they would leave. They would offer cash. cash. And it scared me because what I noticed is that community that um, with the cemetery, with the rabbi, the very famous rabbi right behind them, they want it. They want to expand. And what happens is I remember uh, my grandmother-in-law at one time had an opportunity to purchase a house literally next door to one of the homes where the cemetery was behind her. And she wanted to place an offer when it was found out in that community. They fought, once they found out that she placed an offer on that home, all of a sudden Jews started approaching her with the, the most astronomical amount to counter that offer so that she does not purchase in their community and they wanted to expand. So what I've noticed is that. When I started seeing them, I'm like, and I, I called my mom. I was like, "Mom, you wouldn't believe what I just seen because <laughs> it's di- because you have because you know something like that. You know something is it, up because yeah. I'm not gonna lie. Over time, Lawton, especially the part Lawton I I grew up in, it's a Caribbean neighborhood. We yeah. have our own supermarkets. We mm-hmm. we took back a lot of. Uh, the the part of Merrick where that is the the hair salons are ours. Oh, yeah. uh, all, the, all of the laundry mat is probably owned by someone the black or brown. Part of gentrification. So yeah. when I started noticing them coming in, it was over a summer, so, and it was the men. It was men this and young Orthodox. Oh, yes, yes. They had I'll the hats. You. They had the curls. They I'll had the everything, and they so, were coming in offering people just, large not amounts of money. But not even that. The only reason why we have been able to keep that community is because of the success of the, that com- like I said the median yeah. the median um income in that neighborhood is $80,000 the median so that's what people are bringing in it's a very successful black community so that's the only reason why we've been able to keep that community is because we're successful yeah my mom if would we never were poor sell. it would be hard to tell somebody tried to offer mom they were taking pictures of my mom's house and she was like what the fuck are you doing like get yeah. the fuck up out of here well, like you know well first I wanted to first thank you both for sharing your experiences and um I want to say that it's not everyone in the Jewish community that are doing that, but there are Jews that have that power and influence that are gentrifying communities that are making people who have had a connection to a community and a culture for so long to not see themselves anymore. I know that firsthand from growing up in the Lower East Side in the 90s where I was split again between two communities, a white affluent Jewish community and a, um, you know, diverse community that I was living more part of black and brown, but living with my black and brown neighbors to see so quickly in and now, especially in 20 something years like the mom and pop shops are gone Mm -hmm. the rich midwest people coming in with their ignorance and drinking like crazy when people are trying to go to church or temple Mm -hmm. quietly these high-rise buildings that no one could afford or be able to apply to and to feel you're erased so quickly in some ways that was good for my experience because I was very held back by the conservative mentality that did embrace me. But at the same time, I don't also see myself represented in a different way because it's white people who 
don't care about me also yeah. in different ways. Um, I will, I'm not the expert on this area, but from what I know is that a lot of Orthodox Jews who have made a living has been in the landlord system and they still have it all across the city. It's a huge problem in New York in terms of not only gentrification, but housing discrimination. Well, they will decide. Oh, and misappropriation of funds and assets. Oh, 100%. So in the Jewish community, there is um, a lot of different housing setups in different communities. Sure. Where, like you mentioned before, that there are a lot of Jewish landlords and that's where they make a lot of money. And... Because they are landlords, they there's a lot of segregation in yes. housing. And um, there is a lot of biases that are passed down. And there's a yes. lot of, I would say, missed opportunities for people who are non-Jew. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, so what is, I guess, if you can provide any insight. and Because I, 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 I hate that the only insight that we tend to get is when it blows up in New York Post. Where it says, you know, funding that this landlord might have yeah. received from the government um, was not allocated to individuals where it's supposed to be like helping diverse people, you know, come into um, low income housing or things like that. They're not, they're offering only specifically to their kind. Sure. So um, first I was going to, I was thinking and saying that we know that New York city is one of the most segregated cities in America. Um, It's a city of two cities, the rich, the poor, um, by racial and ethnic lines, it's so divided. Mm-hmm. You'll still see today um, in the most liberal areas like Chelsea being mostly white and affluent um, and various minorities who have been stuck in poverty, being stuck in the same projects, um, NYCHA, supportive living that has not been able to cater to their needs. Um, and added how often black and brown um, neighborhoods and neighborhoods that are low income have been um, taken advantage of to make room for white individuals. Um, So I wanted to clarify that the housing and the housing segregation issue is not a Jewish versus a black and brown thing. I think it's a white versus a black and brown thing because in Israel, for example, in the 50s and 60s, now my grandparents came from a small town outside of the capital in Yemen. And when the Arab Jews came to um, Israel, they were put in tenements um, and they were put in projects and some of them were put into like these like trashy refugee camps um, for decades. They were not prioritized by the government to gain housing like the white Jews that lived there or the white Jews that came um, in the 80s in Russia. So there was a movement in Israel called the Israeli Black Panthers. They modeled off of the Black Panthers. Angela Davis went herself to Israel to fight with uh, black and brown Jews for their strive in a white society mm-hmm. to be able to gain access to housing and education while at the same time the civil rights movement was happening and black people were fighting for the same social liberties. So that shows you it's not a Jewish thing. It's a racial thing. Um, and, and also it's not all Jews because there's Jews across the spectrum and there are many liberal Jews and um, you know, non-Orthodox Jews that 
have created um, through their experiences supportive housing and projects and um, trying to fight against gentrification. Um, but the most of the landlords that still have a lot of power are often landlords who are orthodox and orthodox people who tend to give to themselves and prioritize themselves and you were saying earlier you know you always see an expansion of mostly orthodox jews who come in these black and brown communities because they're often looking for something they don't make a lot of money they're often looking for the the neighborhood that's um could be developed or project or expanded for them and then they have so many kids and then their kids have so many kids and they keep expanding a perfect example is um there is a very orthodox jewish neighborhood outside of the city called five towns oh yeah five now towns. one of yeah. those towns was never jewish it was for a few decades italian and black and brown mm-hmm. inwood mm-hmm. now even in inwood it is becoming rapidly gentrified by orthodox families i remember visiting a teacher that was there and there still is an area when you come off of the last stop on the a train in inwood that is far a, away <laughs> it's it's still underdeveloped and people have been there for decades and there's no social services and tackling and um I, I, something that I've observed through my experience is that the Jews that came from European descent who came into America in the, um, you know, mid to late 19th century and on, um, at first they weren't recognized as they were never Caucasian. We need to split the idea of Caucasian and white. Caucasian, you know, is the people that came from Caucasus. And then white is a definition, a construct that was made in the West that was related to skin color and rather than ethnic origin. So that over time in America, we know included the Italians and the Dutch and the Germans and even Jews who were white passing who benefited from white privilege. So wait. the mountains of Caucasus is a real place? Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, it's, no, no, no. You, no it, one yeah. lives there. And there's but, not probably, I, I probably doubt that there's like a huge colony of white people. It's probably uninhabited at this point. But yeah. that's where the it's word like, stems from. from. Yeah. And the white Jews that struggled to assimilate, who often had to Americanize, you know, their name. My father Americanized his name when he left the Orthodox community, Daniel, so that he could gain certain privileges versus his traditional name, Yasilovsky, that would have barred him from certain things, like all types of people of color and minorities. Um, so those white Jews that were able to assimilate and be able to access white privilege were able to thrive versus brown Jewish families like mine and black Jewish families that they were not able to access the same privileges as their white Jewish counterparts. And it is a constant battle and conversation that even in the most left living, we know white liberals, they're not the most woke and they're still have class and privilege and they're white picket communities. And they might say they care for us, but they still live and operate separately. The liberal ones we're talking about. And that is the same thing, even with the Jewish community that they don't like hearing me because I'm loud. I'm clear. I talk about my experience and it often 
for me, it's been a struggle because when people approach me and they have misconceptions about Jews, I said, there's a huge community that is not the privilege and stereotypes they're talking about that I've always been low income. I've not had the same opportunities as white Jews in my neighborhood who go to master schools and have top jobs and are in the city, orthodox or not. Um, also, was going to go back. New York in itself has historically been part of segregation and gentrification because we know that in the 50s and 60s, you know, the first laws about, you know, housing acts, um, I forgot that, like, you know, fair housing acts that started to grant a black and brown people permission to buy homes were still only in areas that were segregated for them. So in Long Island, for example, there are neighborhoods in various counties that black and brown people were able to buy but they were only able to buy in that zone mm -hmm. there's a really popular documentary by a trans uh director um called um what is it called the island um the one island something like that uh, don't judge me. I'm giving you a lot of information, but I don't always remember everything and know everything. But the point is, um, the Lone Island, you could look it up. But the point is, it was Netflix, it went in Oscars, and it was about a crime that happened towards a black man in an area that was segregated in Long Island. And the reason why the police officers didn't really investigate in the murder so much, which was a self-defense act against a racist um, white um, patron, was because it was in an area that um, the society, the white police, considered that if it's a crime in that area, we have reasons to believe that it was a black and brown person that instigated it and we're not going to be in favor. So there's that whole history, there's that whole racism, there's that whole segregation. We also, again, with various Jews, yes, Jews are one of those people that have always lived to themselves, both for trauma reasons and psychological reasons of always being the outcast that they've kept to themselves naturally. And, um, you know, the more liberal they are, the more, you know, they live amongst various people, but still live to themselves. Um, I see that firsthand of going into liberal synagogues, being mostly white and um, not living with various people, um, which is, you know, I feel, again, religion across boundaries yeah. divides people more than unites people across the boundaries. I whoa the 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 it's again these the gentrification issue is a larger conversation which is mostly as related to race and power and class as we know mm -hmm. i don't want it to pit it against jews because jews have often been seen as sometimes jews are forced into these positions because there is a history where like in europe for example or even in the middle east jews were denied many types of employment opportunities and sometimes the only jobs they were able to give in was the jobs that everyone hated for the government like tax collectors so jews have a long history of being the people that had to go around and collect debt yeah. and taxes and as a result experience anti-semitism because people say they are an extension of the government to try to get money from us and kick us out so i typically have seen jews in positions where they're doctors medical professionals uh if they're in finance is something within tax, um, uh, tax accounting, um, and it, within either the landlord system, social services, um, it's usually within, uh, 
I would say career paths that provide some type of um, help back to their community. Because I think, at least from what I've seen, like when I started off my career, I worked for the local government. Yes. And in my job, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an auditor. So in the local government, I've been exposed to a lot of different things. Sure. And a lot of times I've noticed there was a lot of Jews in specific positions where if they were a tax accountant, there's certain things um that what they would services that what they would strictly provide to someone else within their community to get them their taxes, certain credits written so off, things in, like that. In lines with that, I would I would like to touch on a story that was very close to me. Sheldon Silver, which you may have heard, was an assembly speaker and very powerful in our state and city governments for decades. He's an Orthodox Jew, and he's one of those Orthodox Jews that through his family and assimilation was able to eventually gain access of power like other people in our court system who are part of the Orthodox community who work in these civil jobs. And he found ways to, he got caught eventually a few years ago for money laundering $5 million that he was taking out of nonprofits that were supposed to feed the poor and the needy in various communities. And the co-ops that exist in Lower East Side, he found ways to use the law to prevent it ever being gentrified or modified so Orthodox Jewish people could have power and maintain those homes. And Mm -hmm. I often, when I challenged people in the community and talked about the people that lived here for decades in surrounding areas that are being kicked out, including mine that's Jewish that they might not give a shit about, um, they would have this mentality even after he was caught for his crimes that, oh, he built this community center and he built this for us and that's found ways. Center. Right. And those <laughs> community centers have not even been welcoming always to me because in 2016, I made a documentary um, about me living with my disabled grandmother. And we got illegally, we got these leaflets spread to all the homes saying that we are not making our community centers, which... They weren't theirs at this point, like at the Education Alliance or Henry Street Settlement, nonprofits that open to all, but because they take up spaces and programs there, they have this idea that it's theirs. And they were looking past the law to even say for their synagogue, which even if I would walk into the synagogue and they might not be welcoming, it's still illegal to discriminate in public spaces for anyone, um, regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, class, disability. Um, they wrote in this letter saying that we are not allowing diverse communities and trying to remind their people that we need to segregate ourselves to remain in lines with our tradition. My grandmother was enraged and I made a whole documentary called Bubby and Them about that because she was kicked out of her excommunicated from her community for being an outspoken woman, a woman who's disabled and as a disabled woman she needed a service dog and the orthodox community considers many animals impure and not something that you should have but she needed it for her health and if you actually look at the Bible and the Torah there is a law that says you're allowed to break any law as long as it will save a life even even on the Sabbath. So she's not breaking anything, but this is an example of how Orthodox religions, it's not only Jews, mm-hmm. politicize and weaponize their 
religion as a way of controlling and dividing and um, preventing minorities from gaining access to power because that would mean less for them at the table and added at a time where now um, they have found ways and this is the same you could say about Mormons and the Amish and Muslims across America and across Western societies they have found ways to use civil law to protect them because now they're not a persecuted religion they could be a protected class under this country and they use that to push people like us away so you mentioned your grandmother was excommunicated so i wanted to get into that um because that is something that is not often spoken about Mm -hmm. um and it's 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 kept tucked in and kind of like you know quiet sure so what does excommunicated mean to be excommunicated excommunicated like what does that mean um what does that process look like what is the results of being excommunicated and And some of the personal experiences i know you mentioned that you have other people that you associate with who also been excommunicated from specifically like how was your experience and how like what was your experience with being excommunicated from your community i'm so happy that you said to focus on me not because i'm selfish but um reminding everyone that i or any of us are an expert of our own lived experiences i'm not speaking for anyone else i am also not one of these organizations that work hand in hand and who could give you more of the academic terms but i could give you the general themes as it relates to me and other people so um one again growing up in a brown jewish family um on the consider the wrong side of the block the browns neighborhood the poor neighborhood there was already sentiments that we were the other it was already sentiment and idea in the white Jewish community that the Orthodox community that we're not Orthodox, we're not white, we not have money, we're not the same. I got that message very, very clear as a child. And my mother, despite all that, still had this belief that she said, those people are our people. And I'm like, are they? We speak a different language. Um, we speak Arabic and Hebrew. They speak Yiddish and English. We have a different food. We have a different custom. We have a different culture. They don't see us the same. They don't invite us. We don't have the same access to privileges. This is the ongoing battle that I would have with her because I was more enlightened. Um, and, you know, her mentality, not to like shame her, um, was that she felt indebted to them because she needed to access some resources. So as a result, she compromised parts of her identity. And I was never okay, even as a young child, to compromise who I was. Mm. And it took me a long time to split mentally from them saying, I don't need to be accepted by them because I will never get to be me or being embraced Mm -hmm. and there are people who try to do that and i just feel it's a waste of time so as for me there was already an idea that we were the other we were um stigmatized in the sense of other black and brown people that our value was only seen as worth as our for uh sorry our form of entertainment and our culture and not for our wits and not for other pursuits so that's really what connected me to a lot of other black and brown folks outside of the jewish community was just our similar experiences of racism and colorism and uh xenophobia um and i i am really unique in many ways and it makes it very hard to um often get our community's needs heard which as as spoken as i am i'm learning more to take a step back and to be involved with 
bigger and greater liberation movements, the black liberation movement, the queer liberation movement, dreamers, people who have been doing the good fight and are in larger numbers rather than me going for myself to asking for the government and for our society to give us the same equal amount in schools, in healthcare, in housing, away from environmental racism, etc. And that's part of the community activism and organizing that I do that also incorporates into my artistry. Um, so being um, excommunicated. Sure. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, first it comes with Again, the I had the liberty being in a more modern family and being more exposed to the secular world and knowing how to start to leave. I had the liberty to have more of my mental clarity in terms of not being completely caged mentally, but from what I've heard from other people who are more sheltered in the Orthodox community, they first have to learn how to liberate their minds um, in the sense that they really need to start defying their leaders and accepting that they won't be welcomed. For some, that means that when you challenge the community, you, again, lose access to custody of your children. You lose access to your community centers. You lose access for anyone to being able to provide you a good service. Um, there have been women who have not been able to get set up for marriages who want to stay Orthodox for just merely saying, I want an education outside of the community. I don't want to have 10 kids. I want an abortion, whatever it might be. Um, in a more scarier sense, um, there's physical harm. There are community there. I've had the, the thing that I reminded myself today is that when you're in these isolated communities, it's not just your mother telling you what to do. It's 10 other women who've never been involved in your life who come up to you randomly during the day and saying, you should act this way. You should talk this way. Why aren't you doing this? And I remember I had a woman who came up to me. I've never spoken to her. She's very odd. And this was years after I left my home and she came up to me and she said, you should be more respectful to your mother without her knowing that my mother has abused me physically, uh, without her knowing about the circumstances I have with my mother. But her information was, I'm not Orthodox, so I'm the bad one. And I said to her politely, as much as I wanted to curse her out, I said, your kid is about to run into the street. I think you should prioritize your kid before someone you don't even know your name. Boom. You know, that's an example of how invasive people are in your life and people trying to control you and shame you and taking on roles within your family that they're not involved. They feel they do not have any boundaries mm -hmm. when it comes to your health and your well-being and how you live. They decide for you. But I've also known women who um, had to leave their communities. They're told, we will not allow you to have a contract with us. We will not allow your kids to go to school here anymore. We will take away your kids from you, whether you're secular, whether you're queer, whether you are um, not in accordance with the way of our community. We will not support you at all, which then again, what was so unique about the play that I've written, Chaim to Dykes, was about these women who, yes, were queer and ex-Hasidic and wanted to leave and lost everything in order to be themselves. But then again, if you go watch the documentary on Netflix called One of Us, which got critical acclaim about people leaving their communities, 
there are people who don't want to leave. They like the religious way of life. They just want to do things a little bit differently. They want to go to college. Um, they don't want to get married now. They want to be able to pursue a career. Those people are also harassed. Those people are also attacked physically, emotionally. And it's more extreme the more orthodox or sheltered you go. And that's the same thing about Islam and Catholicism and Mormonism. We hear the stories all over the world of what happened to people when they just make their own free choices and nowhere in the world as people who inhabit it no one should be able to say you need to live a certain way to be able to be safe that is unacceptable and that's a human rights and abuse so that is something that is a huge fear mm-hmm. of mine is because you know you know you have friends that are like um who are like like who are gay or who are trans or whoever yeah. the, are have who are different period mm-hmm. and the first thing you think is like you know like as a, when i was a kid i used to always say like yo i'm so afraid that you know that maybe like my child may not be post per se straight only because i'm afraid of what someone will do to them sure. not because of their preference i don't care what your preference is but just to be fearful to of be their- safe my parents your my life. parents had that fear as well and they've also used it in both good and bad ways to try to make me stay in the closet as many religious people do um and it makes us suppress who we are and you know it's not we're not preferences these are natural parts of who we are you know we're not different we've always existed in this world religion and western societies and white supremacy has colonized the queer and trans experience if you look at any native people in any society across the world Archaeologists have found that the oldest mummy was trans, 4,000 years old. You can't make that shit up. You could go to the Museum of Sex where they have a whole floor about the science in gender and sexuality and identity and expression in the animal and plant kingdom. You have fish that change their gender to make up a quota. You have plants that are asexual and produce on their own. You have primates that have same-sex relationships not for the purpose of i mean i think it's also sex and attraction but to avoid conflict this is part of the experience of the animal kingdom and queer activists always says the only people who don't get it are ignorant unscientific humans We've always been here, but whenever a certain religion in power that wants to erase a minority tries to go after them. If you look at the Tainos um, that were in the Caribbean and Latin America and South America, it was a matriarchal society. Um, Queer identity was celebrated. Um, Trans people across the world were considered shamans um, and recognized as divine for being what they considered the third gender. It is religion that has enforced suffering and genocide and erasure and is trying to, and the Republicans are trying to use that as a way of saying family values or trying to say deviant and horrible the same way that they said about black and brown people and still today of using instead of saying maybe directly race as they're going to probably learn one day to not say queer or transphobic things but to say welfare babies you know or you know um 
you know, food stamp queen, whatever it might be, the um, whistleblowers and the racial coding in their language to still target us to prevent us power. And that's what I want um, other people who are listening who are not like me, who don't have to be queer, who don't have to be trans, who don't have to be Jewish to realize always for me that collective liberation is the way that we dismantle white supremacy, is the way that we dismantle patriarchy, is the way that we dismantle a society of bigotry and hatred and a society that prevents freedom of freedom of expression, freedom of individuality, and for me importantly, freedom from religion. Everyone in my belief should have the right to be able to live however they choose as long as it's not harming others. And when I mean harm, it's not that you're not uncomfortable the way I'm living. I'm not harming you physically, mentally, socially. If you got a problem with it, that's your problem. But I still live in New York City and I have people who have excuses or try to use body language that they're going to give me a hard time because they're affirmed because they're not comfortable, whether they're toxic masculinity or their bigotry, and then they feel they have the right to harm me. That is their problem, not mine, and they need to be held accountable. But I'm not part of a protected class federally. I'm not part of a minority that is, um, you know, empowered and privileged that we could always fight back. And that's why it's so important for everyone to hear that we have collective experiences and challenges and that. I come here because your representation is helping my representation. And if we do not work together, we're still going to be struggling to get the white man out of, you know, like our superhero comics. So like you trying to help me making sure that I'm being represented fully and authentically is the same thing that I'm expected to do to make sure that you're seen because we are seeing, we might come from different backgrounds, but we're fighting the same fight. And people tend to forget that because they, when you feel hurt and you then feel isolated and then you feel you could only trust your own people, which is not always true because we see that there are people in our own community that harms us, we need to remind ourselves that the fight cannot be done alone. That's what happened with any movement. It succeeds with allies. And yes. people forget the power in allyship. Yes. So um, before we wrap, I really want to just briefly touch on some myths that are taught to other communities who are non-Jew, non-Orthodox. Mm-hmm. And if you can break that down just really quickly before we head out, just so I can... Um, I know people had a lot of random questions about, and, 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 and it stems from curiosity and not obviously being allowed in this community. So, mm-hmm. okay, one of the first things I remember being taught or at least told about... It's hot in here, girls. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little hot. warm. Again, I'm not taking my wig off. <laughs> but you can take your clothes off, <laughs> yeah, right? It's right? hot in here. Um, take off. So what the first thing I remember... It's so hot. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so I remember people gossiping, because again, we I grew up adjacent to a Jewish community, that the women wear wigs because they have to sh- shave their heads the night before the wedding. Is that a myth or is that is that true? So again, it's it's a 
I wouldn't say it's a religious law, but it's what the Hasidic people do as form of being extreme in their way of observing that they took it literally in terms of interpretation, no virgin hair to any man. So let's remove it completely and cover it with something fake and add it, put a hat. So that's an extreme thing that okay. has a small group of Hasidic Jews do. It's not true for all of them. And it's not true for most of Orthodox Jews, but it's their way of, um, putting an extreme hold on a tradition that they interpret misinterpret okay another one so you mentioned pets not being almost allowed so I've never seen a Jewish person walk a dog I'm not gonna lie so again it's not <laughs> I've never seen a Jewish person with a pet so are you a lot I mean I'm not gonna lie I had a Jewish VP one time but he, he was I guess secular he had a dog. So, yeah, let's but make sure. So, who are, are Orthodox Jews allowed pets? You should. It's There is laws in the Torah that says, for example, in Passover or even in just in general, it says that you always need to feed your pet first because that was related to when people were farmers or had cattle and that was their way for not only business but also for their way to eat that you need to be able as part of the religion to take care of animals animal rights is a huge thing in our tradition because you need to care for the well-being of everyone to be able to be well yourself Mm -hmm. um again orthodox people have change their way of life over time that they feel that there's not necessary to have animals now that we're living in modern times um so animals today is not for business and it's not for feeding ourselves it's for comfort and they politicize the comfort as a distraction from their religious way of life okay so it's it corrupts the idea of telling you that you cannot have it because they try to find other ways of saying it's dirty, it's impure, um, it takes us away from being able to study our focus of life, but it's it's not, especially if you need it as a service dog or to take care of your health, it's, it's completely bullshit. And again, the less orthodox you are, they're open and fine with it. You mm-hmm. know, I've had a bird. I've had hamsters. Um, my mom considers herself modern orthodox. I've taken care of cats. Other families did not who are more. So it. I, I just want to be able I to... I guess where where you are in the spectrum, then that will then determine... Yes. Whether, how extreme you are in But again, like I, I want to make sure that when we say the word Jewish that we know that it's a hybrid word and it's a monolithic word because I know when we're talking, you're talking about orthodoxy Mm -hmm. and orthodox Jews, but they are a minority compared to most Jews in the world in America who do not commit the same, I would say, microaggressions and racism and a lot of Jews who work with various communities because their essential beliefs is about human rights like me um, and working hand in hand. The Orthodox Jews, again, are like the Westboro Baptists, some of them, you know, or the other closed minded extreme. So it is a, it Jews is a spectrum. It comes in every color, every shape, every gender. Jews. You were raised modern Orthodox. So you were allowed pets. 
but there are some in ultra orthodoxy they do not have pets okay mm. so um another one and it, it's a it's a crazier uh, myth but i don't know if you heard this but i remember uh there was a saying that ortho orthodox jews ultra orthodox i would say when when they have sex that they have a sheet with a hole <laughs> I, that, I i know that i personally sure. know that that i i believe that's supposed to be a myth but i still hear people uh very curious so about that that sounds ridiculous it does it's something and that- i don't know where that came from I, 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 I'm going to put my theory on it. My theory is that because people on the outside hear that there's so many strict rules about sex, that someone must have conceived the idea that there's a sheet involved. Um, like, there is work? no sheet. It's in the Torah that um, sex, regardless of the gender, I'm also saying it in like a non-heteronormative way, needs to be more intimate the most intimate when you see each other. Now for Orthodox, that means in dim light because they see that as sexy and you have to deal with the other body. But in Orthodox communities, modern to ultra Orthodox, one thing they have for sure is there is no sexual relationship before marriage. That's a taboo before marriage. And then even within marriage, you know, it's only done after the cycle of a in a heterosexual two, two two weeks out of the month because two weeks out of the month they're not able to touch their the the wife because she has a period yes and it's considered impure to have sex when mm-hmm. she has a period and in that process when she has a period she needs to go to um a body of water that is considered natural we call it the mikvah that you have in different communities all over the world where they go to cleanse themselves as also is done for um circumcision uh for some people or it's kind of like a baptism that people do or cleaning your dishes to make it if you bought it from the market and it's not so these are not in homes these are in the community in the community so you have to go in wait wait i just want to clarify this just go bathe somewhere else no it's a pool of fresh water that people go for specific times to purify themselves and part of the household so once her cycle is complete she um well i i don't i'm again i'm not the expert and um I don't have a period um, as Can part I of- Google this? I will send you a video. Uh, Oprah it's did very, a segment where they actually talked about it and what happens. It's very sens- It's very sensual and very quiet, but I would think you would you would you would need to make sure that um, you open your the interpretations because everyone there's probably a lot of disinformation yeah and the orthodox people are probably going to gatekeep what they say um they also aren't touched by their husbands at all there's no physical communication there's no physical touch i have my period and you're my husband and i need to pass you a plate i have to do this yes and then you pick it up she did her research yes yeah they because (laughs) they believe they would like to believe that amongst orthodoxy it's that serious they, they want to believe it's not only about the period, but they feel that um, sexual relations and relationships um, improve by having time and distance and, and holding on to your desire. Now, some some Orthodox Jews, not to cut you off, uh, the women feel that that creates more intimacy yes. for them. Yes. So yes. It's no physical touch. So there's other ways to show intimacy. So they'll have conversations. And they're they're find other ways to show that 
So, so I endearment. guess. So, so I guess them not touching for two weeks makes them more, I guess, horny but, or. Yes, that's okay. the idea. But also, let's also remember that other parts of their body and who they are throughout the year, to, in order to not only keep themselves modest from the public, but to reveal only what's more sensual about themselves for others. So, Orthodox women across the spectrum, regardless of style, they have these laws and customs that women, for example, um, need to be um, not to reveal certain parts of their body. So they cover their arms, they cover, you know, their breasts. um, They um, always, it's the knee or below, depending on the denomination, they'll go lower or higher. What's the texture. Um, Mm -hmm. That's where the wigs come in Um, for more extreme um, versions of orthodoxy. They won't wear makeup, but the more lighter streams, they'll wear it when it comes to weddings. Do their children see them? When they come home and they're clothed, they're fully clothed in the street, they have their wigs on. When they come home, they never they, show it to anyone. But their, their fam- husbands. Their husbands only even see it in private quarters. Their own children do not see them fully exposed ever, ever. So they are fully clothed even at home they're, and with their wig. And then Well, they only- might not have a wig. They might have like a turban yeah. or something or covering up, but like they have these. Uh, <laughs> they have these like robes that to the floor. Have to watch I, I have to watch. I have like, because this is really intriguing. Because I'm just thinking to myself, like, how does your child feel intimate with you if they never get to see you? Well, you have to understand they're raised this way, so it's raised into a belief where this is normal yes. versus True. where we're this raised. This is something where you're born. To, and this is the way where, men speak to women, and that this is. But at the downside is you have especially added if you're queer or trans or you are sexually fluid you have no sexual health education until you're married and there are women who have been raped there are women who have been abused there are women who um did not know what to deal with when they had a miscarriage no reproductive education or justice um there are queer people who don't know how to have um healthy safe uh sex and hiv prevention because Um, there is no there is no education that is affirming the reality that we all have as beings as sexual beings so that is the harm on the one side but the other side is they believe that remove that idea completely uh they 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 have this weird idea thinking that even with their segregation even with the lack of information even with everything else, you're going to eliminate completely out of a human being the sexual desire, which is not humane. We are all sexual beings, but that makes you negate a part of the human. And then you're saying it's only activated in our circumstances, in this room, during this time. Like the in a heterosexual religious couple, they're supposed to get, have their night, and they have their first meet right before they come out and get um, after their marriage and before they go celebrate with everyone. They're supposed to be in a room called the Yichud room. Now, the Yichud room is meaning like you're by yourself in isolation. And the first time in an Orthodox arranged marriage, they actually get to speak to each other bef- after their one or two so- dates. And then after that, they are told by a counselor a religious counselor when and how they're supposed to have sex and this is terrifying because you've never heard of it you don't know how it looks like you're then asked to go by yourself 
luckily no one's coming in and saying like stick it in there or whatever but you're stuck now with a gender and a body and your own body and you don't know how it works and don't have a comfortable and you have to figure it out all on your own and there's a lot of people that i know that especially the women have very traumatizing experiences about their bodies and about sexual health because they are not informed at all and it's gatekeeped and that is dangerous and that right that creates so, some harm yeah. so we're we're coming up on time um, one thing that I want that we did not cover <sighs> that I at least I'm I don't want to say I'm educated fully somewhat educated on is the matchmaking process so we didn't really get into it I know that we, we really come up on time we don't have much matchmaker we really don't have much wish. time but the matchmaking is not done by parents. It's done no. by someone in the head of the community. I, I don't remember. Yes. So uh, there's a and term. There, what happens is they have an understanding of the individuals who are not married. Um, and they matchmake them based on class, uh, based on yep. genetics. Genetics. There's a specific breakdown of Health. how they match. It's, and so they're, they're essentially set up. Like she they're did told, a research. They're told this is who you're going to be matched with. You go on dates. They're still limited to. There's no touching. There's a. There's no intimacy. So there's, even this yeah. kind of shows you. So you did your research very, very well. Oh, thank I'm you. Very, very <laughs> proud of you. Not the average person outside of the community or even outside of the Orthodox community does not know what you just said. I would really love to hear where you got your resources from later. So there is someone called uh, Shad Khan or Shad Khanit. Um, they are the role makers in the community to do the matchmaking which has been done for centuries um and that looks like in very many ways for the orthodox world the way they've been able to maintain their communities and to determine who is jewish or not by only doing people in the communities because there was often assimilation there was often people converted out people who came in who wanted to be a partake and they only they it already conceived this idea of um you know, isolation and self-selecting by having the people that they thought they knew who were part of the community and later got politicized where eugenics was involved. So if you as an Orthodox Jewish woman and a black woman, you do not have the freedom to marry whoever you want. The average white guy or the most affluent white guy will never get married to you in an Orthodox community because you, they they will say it, but they won't always say it loud. They'll think of you as less than because of your race. And the person that usually gets matchmaked who is considered bad goods are people who are less respected in the community. And they've already normalized it. So the people that are normalized in the Orthodox community across the spectrum, the people that are born in the rabbinic families or the wealthy families are on top. Um, those who also, there's also uh, a... Um, like a cheat way for some people, especially men, to be able to have a better prospect. If you happen to be really smart and you went to the top school, that's a level of class privilege mm -hmm. that allows you to marry anyone. You could have anyone and it will like women, men that will be selected to you. And the same thing with the girls. But then also you're expected to come from a good family. A good family is someone who's so obedient to the community. They have no problems. If a girl got raped and it's not her fault, they put the blame and shame on her that she is untouchable. She is bad goods. Mm -hmm. She is liable. We don't know how we'll f they do not know the science of 
of someone being raped has nothing to do with whether or not you could have healthy children. Um, there have been stories of people who got raped and who um, eventually that is what made them have to leave the community because the harm that was done to them. Um, again, if you had a member of your family who was an addict or an abuser, or if there was something corrupted in their eyes, you would have less of a chance to be able to get married into a good family. So, and you could be the shittiest person in the world and an abuser, but no one knows about it because you're protected by a class privilege or a religious privilege. You could have access to anything. Added, this didn't happen to me because I was in a more modern school, but in the more orthodox schools, when they are, um, I would say the end of high school, they take a genetic test for Alzheimer's and other diseases now, a blood test, all of them, and this matchmaker now has a list of who's healthy and who's not, and they pick and choose genetically who can mix and who could be. Um, and then again, whether it's your race or you have a disability, you will be given less than, mm-hmm. and it creates, it just shows you that within the Orthodox community, there is a whole hierarchy of race, class, disability, and gender that predetermines who you get to have a life with mm-hmm. so you're not only it's not the extreme is not only that you are already from the moment you're born your role is set for you yeah. but where your role is set on the hierarchy is set even more clearly for you depending on what you were just like in anything in life where you were born into means the school that you go to means right. the life that you type of have and so that's the way they've really, adopted so you can never really change yeah. who you are but or you get kicked um, out so, I'm and then you don't get talked to, and then no one has anything to do with you. So, Cleo, um, uh, we we've come up on time, mm-hmm. um, but I really want to thank you so much sure. for being brave enough to come on, right? Um, and share your experiences probably. and providing all this insight into a community that we have such uh, limited. Um, uh, uh, and it's it's not a very tangible community. It, it you know. I just am so appreciative for this experience. Thank um, you. Before we head out, I want to make sure you guys tune in to this episode and all episodes on our YouTube channel. Check us out on all platforms, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, CastBox, Google Podcasts. Um, you can follow me on IG at always underscore Nas. You can follow the podcast at the loud at the loud ones podcast on ig twitter is loud ones podcast danny what's your ig danny bonaducci and cleo uh anything you want to plug anything that you want to mention yeah so two things i wanted people to know that um the reason why you don't see a lot of people like me is there's often a safety factor when we ever go to the media we have people in power trying to silence us there were things that today that i couldn't hold myself back from telling but um if it was ever really publicized and someone was really trying to get me there would be legal consequences that they will try to silence me or trying to deny me of my experience based on legal contracts that i had to sign in order to safely leave um as brave and strong as i am i've lost a lot in order to become who i am physically mentally emotionally um and then added if you want to follow my work you could follow me at mx dot enigma e n i g m a and uh see all the beautiful queer uh mizrahi artistic shit that i do and thank you for (laughs) tuning in 
Yes. Thank you, guys. Oh, and one other thing. Um, so Cleo mentioned that uh, she'll be providing us with educational links yes. that we'll leave below in a description box. Um, just also, guys, this is going to be a two-part uh, episode because there's so much information packed. So much. Um, so definitely tune into part one. Part um, one. And we'll have two parts to this. Um, but again, all informational um, links will be down below in our description. And again, follow and check out Cleo's beautiful artwork. Uh, check us out on all our social media platforms. And we'll check you on the next episode. Bye, guys. Bye.